0: Well, hey guys, welcome to week six of our series. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, open them up to John chapters 16 and 17. Now, before we get started, I want to do something a little bit strange. I'm going to read my opening prayer, and and there's going to be a method to my madness, so bear with me. Well, Father, you know that all these guys are going through a rough time right now. Their hearts are filled with all kinds of emotions, from anger and frustration to fear and doubt. Nothing seems to be going the way we expected. This past year has been a virtual train wreck, and 2021 isn't off to such a great start either. It all appears as if the wrong side is winning and that you've been busy somewhere else, but we know that's not true. You've been here all along, and neither your power nor your love for us have diminished a single bit. So as we study these two chapters, would you open our eyes so that we can recognize your presence in and around us? And would you help us to understand that we've been equipped with the very same power you gave to the disciples at Pentecost, the indwelling presence of your spirit. As Peter reminds us, in your divine power, you've given us everything we need for living a godly life. May we learn to believe that truth and live in the reality of it. And we pray this in the matchless name of the one who made it all possible, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, you may be wondering, why did you choose to read your prayer? Well, I I wanted to do so because I wanted the wording to be very specific. And I didn't want to trust my memory. So I wrote it down. And I hope you notice that while that prayer was directed at God, it was talking to you, to me. And, And so The reason for that is that oftentimes that's how we pray, and and I'm not saying that's a wrong way to pray. It's it's a very common way to pray. Um, We we pray with those around us in mind, especially if we're praying out loud. We pray with those around us in mind, and and we we share thoughts to them as we share those same thoughts with God. Now, the reason, again, for me doing that is because we're going to see that very thing done in one of these chapters as we go through it today. Chapter 16 and 17 are so incredibly rich that I actually got about 80% through with my talk when God just kind of stopped me and said, no, you're going the wrong direction. And so I had to back up and start all over. And for anybody who teaches or speaks, that's like the kiss of death, to have to begin all over again, my presentation, my outline, Everything. And so I've spent the last week reworking this talk based on what I felt like God was showing me. And it's something I've never seen before when looking at these particular chapters. And so we're going to dig into it and, and just see what, what is God trying to tell us through the lips of Jesus as He speaks to His disciples. And it, once again, we've got to remember, we're still in Thursday of the Passion Week. And Jesus is going to give these men... What I call a pep talk and a prayer. Chapter 16 is kind of the end of his pep talk that's been going on for several chapters, and then chapter 17 is a prayer that he offers up to God. So it's a it's a pep talk and a prayer. Now, chapters 15 and 17 are are what these two chapters kind of bring into summary. They they close out what's called the upper room discourse, where Jesus is talking to his disciples. Once again, it's Thursday it's in the evening. We're in the upper room. They've celebrated the Passover together. Uh, Jesus Christ has instituted the Last Supper, and they've shared that. He's talked about the broken bread representing His body. He's talked about the wine being the blood that He's about to shed on the cross. He's washed their feet, much to their embarrassment and chagrin. He's also exposed Judas as the one who's going to betray Him. And and so, all of these things have taken place. and, And now Jesus gives them kind of the closing part of his divine pep talk. Uh, He's been sharing a whole lot of information with these men, and, and now he's beginning to wrap it up, and he's beginning to close up and summarize everything that he said, and that's what chapter 16 is really all about. So what has he told them? Well, we know back in chapter 15 he said, Abide in me. He's inviting them into this relationship that is going to be made made possible by the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's told them, whatever you wish, whatever you want, it will be done for you. Now, once again, that's not some blank check that he's offering to the disciples to ask for whatever their hearts desire. It's saying that when this transformation takes place in you, as a result of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, you're going to ask for things that are in alignment with My will and the Father's will. And guess what? When you pray that way, you get your prayers answered. He goes on and tells them, love one another. Again, this is a pep talk. He's trying to enthuse these guys to make it through the next hours and through the next days so that they get to that point at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit can come upon them. He's commanding them. He's encouraging them. He says, hey guys, I chose you. Not only did I choose you, I've appointed you. And and you have a job, a commission you're going to accomplish and you're going to bear fruit. Now we talked about last week, that fruit is their love. Their love for one another. The same love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. A supernatural, otherworldly kind of love that they don't yet possess. That's why it's so important for the Helper to come, which He's promised. The Helper's going to come, and He's going to bear witness to them about Him. It's going to be as if Jesus is still with them, because He and the Spirit are are one, just as He and the Father are one. And when the Spirit of truth does come, He's going to guide them into all truth. But then He says, guys, you're going to be sorrowful. These next days are going to be very difficult, but there's going to be a joy that comes. Darkness is going to be followed by incredible light. But the thing is, even in this pep talk, he's he's very blunt. Uh, He's he's very careful not to sugarcoat it. He's he's not hiding the ball. He's not keeping anything from them. He's, He's very, very specific in some of the negative things that they're going to experience. He says, if you don't abide, guess what? You're thrown away as a branch and you wither. Once again, he's not teaching the loss of salvation. He's simply saying that abiding is a prerequisite, a requirement for fruitfulness. And they will be fruitful because they'll have the spirit within them. And then he tells them, you're you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world. But guess what? Because of that very fact, the world's going to hate you. Just as it hated me, it will hate you, he tells them. And he says, not only will they hate you, they're going to persecute you. And how they're going to do that is very specifically, one of the ways they're going to do it is, is throw them out of the synagogues. And they're going to weep. They're going to lament. But guess what? The world, that lost and dying world to whom they're bringing the gospel or will bring the gospel is going to reject it. And they're actually going to rejoice in the persecution of the disciples. And in doing so, chapter 16 tells us, they're, they're going to actually think they're doing God a favor by persecuting these men. He goes on and says in verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home and will leave me alone. Now this is all part of that, quote, pep talk. He's telling them the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's letting them know that guys, it's going to be rough. It's going to be hard. You're going to be sorrowful. There's going to be persecution involved. There's going to be ostracization involved. You're going to be kicked out of the synagogues. You're going to be treated like pariah. And yet, there's some great things coming. And isn't that really what a pep talk's all about? A pep talk is meant to encourage, but sometimes it, it admits the reality of the circumstance. It, it reminds me of a, a, a pep talk that a coach might give to his team before they go out onto the field, and he admits that, you know, hey, this team is tough. They're, they're last year's state champions, but you know what? We can beat them. Yeah, they're faster, they're bigger, but we, we have heart. We have soul. We've practiced hard. He, he doesn't hide anything. He doesn't downplay the abilities of the opponent, but he, he paints a picture of success, of future success. And that's really what Jesus is doing here. And it reminds me of another farewell address. And it's one that Joshua gave to the people of Israel as he's about to die. And he passes on the baton and listen to what he says. He goes there now, therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. In other words, make a decision whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This was uh, Joshua's pep talk to the Israelites before he passed off this mortal coil. He, he basically is saying, guys, don't give up. Don't give in. Make a decision. Uh, You have what you need. Do it. But you got to make a decision. you got to decide what it is you're going to do, and you need to decide it now. As for me and my house, we've already decided. And in a way, that's what Jesus is doing with the disciples as we look at chapter 16, and it's going to be supported by what He prays in chapter 17. And and again, He's painting a dark, grim picture to these men. He, He tells them that you're going to need to bear fruit. He's expecting fruitfulness from their lives. And at this point, as they face the dark days ahead, not knowing exactly what's going to happen, fruitfulness is the last thing on their minds. They're thinking about loss. They're thinking about dark days. And yet he says, you're going to bear much fruit. You're, you're, you're going to need to love one another. As a matter of fact, it's a command. He's stressed that In chapter 15, this is my command that you love one another. He warned them that you need to abide or you'll be failures. You're going to need to maintain this relationship. But again, what Jesus is letting them know is that it's not up to them to maintain it. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. They're going to have a capacity they don't currently have. And then he tells them, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer persecution. Again, not hiding the ball, not keeping anything from them, but all as a way to encourage them to keep on keeping on. And they're going to be hated. Hated by the world and persecuted by the world. And the last thing he told them is, you're going to abandon me. And just hours ahead, these men are going to scatter into the dark recesses of the night because of fear, because of a sense of failure. See, It's hard for us to understand, but this is really a pep talk. It's meant to encourage. And so as we look at chapter 16, and we're not going to go through this verse by verse. We've already summarized so much of what Jesus said. He begins by saying, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. This is really his whole point, is that I want you to stay focused. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't run away. Let me finish the job that I came to do. And if I do, great things are going to happen. So he said, I've said these things. What things? Everything he's told them for the last three chapters. He's told them a great deal of things. Everything that's going to happen in the days ahead. See, he's warning them. And they're going to be tempted to throw in the towel. They're going to be tempted to just give up and go back to what they used to do. And just think that it's their dreams of the Messiah, their dreams of the kingdom, their dreams of everything are now over. And he knows that their fear is going to get the best of them. It's going to overwhelm them. And so he's warning them. Hey guys, I want you to know what's coming. It's going to be dark. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But don't give up because I'm not done yet. So he continues to teach them and prepare them for all that's going to happen. It's inevitable because it's all part of God's plan. See, Jesus knows it. They don't. But He's revealing it to them over and over again. Then he, he, again, He says in verse 4, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. When the right times comes, when, when everything starts to fall apart, that you don't bail because... I've already warned you this is going to happen. He's told them He's going to the cross. He's told them He's going to be uh, crucified. He's told them He's going to rise from the dead. And He's warning them about, about all the details of the hours and the days ahead so that they will recognize it when they see it. So He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning. In other words, I didn't reveal all of this at day one because they probably would have bailed. He waited till the end. He also didn't tell them at day one because he was with them. They had his presence, but now he's leaving them. And that's why this is so important that he lets them know all the details of what's about to happen because he will no longer be there to comfort them and to guide them and to teach them. But verse 5 says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? Isn't it interesting? At this point, they've stopped asking questions. That's really what Jesus infers here. Now, they asked this before. Peter asked it, Where are you going? And Thomas said, how do we get there? And then Philip said, just show us God. But at this point, they've stopped asking questions. They're no longer questioning where he's going. They've grown silent. It's like they're in shock. They're dazed and confused. But he says, but because I have said these things to you, now sorrow has filled your heart. You're sorrowful. You, 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 you can't see any hope. You're you're." There's no light at the end of the tunnel you find yourself in. All you see is darkness. But he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. That that statement makes all the sense in the world to you and I on this side of the cross. But to these men, it, it was confusing and contradictory. He says, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit can't come. Everything has to be done in sequence at the right time and in the right order according to the will of God. But he says, but if I go, if I follow through with the plan that God has given me, if I am obedient to the will of my Heavenly Father, He will come. See, He's going to turn what appears to be a negative from their perspective into an incredible positive. He's going to turn fear into faith. He's going to turn their timidity into incredible boldness. It's hard to imagine at this point that group of men who are somewhat cowering and fearful in that upper room, scared about the future, are going to become incredible witnesses for the kingdom of God. But he's going to take their inherent weakness in the flesh and he's going to turn it into strength through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, their sorrow will be turned into incredible joy. Joy at seeing Him in His resurrected form, but even more joy when they see what they're able to accomplish through the gift of the Spirit that they receive at Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. So their loss, what is perceived loss, the loss of their Messiah, the loss of their friend, is going to turn into great gain. And it's going to turn their small number, 11 men, into a great host as they begin to teach and preach in the days ahead after the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we know in one day more than 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And it began the exponential growth of the church that's still going on today. So Jesus is encouraging them both by sharing good things and sharing the inherent bad things that are going to be coming in the days ahead. So verse 32, He says, Behold, the hour is coming. It's here. It's come. When you're going to be scattered, you're going to go to the four corners. You're you're going to hide in the dark recesses, each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone, yet I'm not alone. See, Jesus is not fearful. Jesus is not uh, panicked about any of this. He says, I'm not alone. He's got his Father with him. He's going to have the Holy Spirit comforting him and guiding him all along this journey to the cross. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What a statement of confidence, but also encouragement to these men. I have overcome the world. He's not yet gone to the cross, but he speaks as if he already has accomplished it, because he will. And he's confident in what his father will do to raise him from the dead and restore him to life. See, Jesus knows how this thing's going to turn out. But it's interesting, he says, I have said these things to you. Once again, he's repeated this for the third time. These things, the the word that's used here in the Greek is tauta, it it means it can be these things or these words, these statements, these, these conditions that I've expressed to you. I've said them to you for a reason. He said it back in verse 4. I said these, did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. He repeats it again in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. He has been telling them things are going to happen. And he's used figures of speech and, and extended allegories and metaphors to make that happen. He said in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. But now, see, Jesus is going to say it a fourth time. And that's where we're going to pick it up, because now he's going to express it in the form of a prayer. And, and I've never noticed this before. and This is why I had to start my lesson all over again. It's also why I opened this lesson with that prayer, that written prayer, because I want you to notice something that, that God showed to me and just meditating on this passage and what's the best way to communicate it? Because he's going to use a prayer and he's going to talk to his heavenly father, but in their hearing. And guys, I have never noticed this before. I have been in Christ since I was seven years old. I have sat through countless sermons. I have studied the Bible and taught the Bible, and I've never noticed this about this passage. See, chapter 17 is is what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And, and, Here's how we typically think of that prayer. We think of Jesus in the garden, kneeling down and praying to his heavenly father. And and, and in such agony and intensity that blood actually drops from from his forehead. But here's the reality of what's going on here. That's not the scene. The scene is in the upper room. They haven't left the upper room. He's in the upper room, surrounded by his disciples. And here's what... Chapter, one, or chapter 17, verse 1 tells us, When Jesus had spoken these things, there's that phrase again. When he had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. So he's just finished talking about all these things. He's just given his to- pep talk. And now he's, he lifts up his eyes and he begins to pray. But what I want you to notice is how he prays. He's obviously praying out loud in front of the disciples in their hearing because he wants them to hear every word that he's saying to his heavenly father. So he finishes his pep talk and then he begins a prayer. And he says, father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may be glorified in you. Here are these words, these things that he's spoken. And now what's going to happen is he's going to reiterate them. He's going to say them again, but in a different form. So, so look at what he says here. He says, let's back up a second. He says, father, the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So here's Jesus talking to his heavenly father in the hearing of the disciples. And that's important. And he begins talking about eternal life. The ultimate goal of all of this. He says, you, you gave me eternal life to give to them, and then he clarifies and he describes, defines what eternal life is. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. See, Jesus is prefacing his prayer, <clears throat> talking to God the Father, but in the hearing of his disciples about what it means to truly have eternal life. See, their thought is it's going to be some form of an everlasting kingdom here on this earth in which Jesus Christ reigns on the throne of David and they get to reign with Him. And yet he clarifies that no, eternal life is really about a relationship. A relationship with God the Father and God the Son. That's eternal life. Eternal life is not a place. It's not a destination that we go to. It's it's a relationship that is made available to us through the indwelling presence of the Spirit when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit make their home in us, as Jesus described earlier. So again, praying to the Father, but in the hearing of the disciples so that they hear everything that He's saying. And His emphasis is on what? Eternal life. Everything that He came to offer them. So this prayer is for their benefit. Think about this. Jesus is not telling God the Father anything He doesn't already know. These are not new truths that He's sharing with the Father. He's just having a conversation about things they share in common. But it's for the benefit of the disciples. And the content of this prayer is simply a reiteration of everything He said in the last two to three chapters. And I want to show you how true that is. And it just jumped out at me in prayer, preparing this lesson this week. And the longer I looked at it, the more it, it excited me that this prayer is meant to support everything that he said. And it's involving his heavenly father. See, it's like he's, he's talked to them for I don't know how many minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, two hours. We don't know, but he's told them a whole lot of stuff. And now he changes the direction direction of his conversation, but he's still talking about the same things. And who has the privilege of listening in? These men. But they're hearing it now involving a third party, God the Father. So all I want to do is is work my way through this prayer and I want to show you how it's just a reiteration of everything he's just told them. And it's for their benefit and for their further encouragement. So let's just start with verse 1 of chapter 17. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Where have we seen this before? All the way back in chapter 13. He said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. See, he's repeating what he's already told them, but in a conversation with the Father. See, what he's letting them know is that my glorification is in the Father's hands. My death, my burial, my resurrection, and my glorification is all part of God's divine plan, which inherently lets them know that his plan for you is already taken care of as well. So they had no reason to fear or doubt See, He wants them to know that there's somebody else involved in this whole scene. From their perspective, Jesus was beginning to look more and more like just a man who was going to suffer and die. That doesn't look like a God. That doesn't look like a Messiah. But Jesus said, you you seem to forget that there's somebody else involved in this equation. It's God, my Father. And then He goes on in verse 4 and says, I glorified you on earth, speaking to the Father. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. What, once again, what's, what's he doing? He's repeating what he's told the disciples. He says in verse 13 of chapter 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. See, Jesus is going to go back to the Father, and he will glorify his Father through the works of these men as they continue on his ministry and mission. Again, involving God in the program so that they don't forget. The Father's going to continue what He began through Jesus and glorify Himself through Jesus as Jesus works through these men, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's the reason these men were going to do greater works than even Jesus did. And every time they did one of those greater works, who got the glory? Jesus was glorified, which ultimately brought glory to the Father. See, God's involved. Don't forget that picture. So as you and I go through what we're going through in these difficult days, never lose sight of the fact that your sovereign God, all-powerful God, is in full control and not asleep at the wheel. He hasn't turned His back. He hasn't vacated the premises. He's not up in heaven wringing His hands. He knows exactly what's going on, and you can trust Him. Well, let's look at verse 6. Again, praying to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. See, these men are standing around the, the edges, listening. I don't know if they have their eyes closed. I don't know, even know if Jesus has his eyes closed. But they know he's talking to the Father. And this picks up on what he said in chapter 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, he tells his disciples, the world would love you as its own. But it's because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. See, God had given Jesus these 11 men for a specific purpose. And now he's telling them, because of that fact that God gave you to me, you no longer belong to this world. And because you no longer belong to this world, guess what? you're going to be hated by this world. This this idea that they had been given to Jesus by God is one that we need to really get our heads and hearts around because the same thing is true of you and I. We have been given to Jesus by God. Jesus made it very clear that no one comes to me except through the Father, those that He has given me. And, And so this idea that these men were ordained by God to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And and as a result, they would not only accomplish greater works, but they would also suffer in the same way that Jesus Christ suffered, but according to the ordained will of God, the sovereign will of God. See, Jesus had shown them God. He was God in the flesh. He was God incarnate. He, He revealed, manifested God to them for three and a half years. And that's a significant thing. Because now they're going to have the same union with the Father that Jesus Christ enjoyed. Why? Because God had given them to Christ and Jesus kept them and would preserve them and ultimately fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit and they would have unity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So once again, encouraging, reiterating, reemphasizing everything that He's told them as He talks to His Heavenly Father. Verse 8, he goes on, He says, I have given them the words that you gave Me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent Me. See, these men are sitting there and they're beginning to realize that, okay, so everything you told us came from God? He said that, but now they're hearing it as if God's listening in. See, he told them back in chapter 15, verse 15, all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I've not hidden anything from you. I've gotten it from the Father. It's passed through my lips and into your ears. You've been the beneficiaries of that conversation between the Heavenly Father and me. So they, they know things directly from God. And Jesus Christ, because He is God, has been the channel." He told them in chapter 16, verse 27, You have loved me and I believe and have believed that I have come from God. See, these men, to the best of their ability, in their fallen flesh, have believed that He came from God. They're struggling. They don't completely understand what that means. And they, they are certainly wrestling with the idea that He's going to die and ascend back up into heaven and sit at the right hand of His Father. They thought He was going to sit at a, on a throne in Jerusalem, but, but they believed So Jesus has shared and they have believed. See, this message that they're believing and they're beginning to wrestle with came from God the Father. And they needed to understand it as they move into the darkness of the night and they see Jesus get arrested and and go on trial and ultimately go to the cross. They needed to remember that everything that they're seeing, everything that they're watching is... A message given to them by God and in fulfillment of God and His will. See, Jesus had been faithful to deliver this message. And it was accurate. To the last detail. Even in that moment when He revealed that Judas was going to be the betrayer, that He used Old Testament prophecies to fulfill, whoever I give this morsel of bread to is He who has lifted up His heel against me. Quoting from Isaiah... Every detail, every word, everything was pointing to the accuracy of the message. And their belief, even though it's not fully formed and it's his, his rough around the edges, is going to be fully rewarded in the days ahead. Well, he goes on and he says, I am no longer in the world and they are in the world and I'm coming to you. See, He's already told him this. He told him back in chapter 16, verse 28. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. But He's emphasizing that it's as if I'm already gone. I am no longer in the world. I've already vacated these premises, even though I've still got to go to the cross. I've still got to die and be buried. I still have to be resurrected, but but I'm as, as good as there because He's so confident in the power and the will of His Father. But He says, they're in the world. They're still here. That's why in chapter 13, verse 38, He says, where I'm going, you can't follow Me now, but you will follow afterward. See, you're going to be here for a while. You can't go right now. I'm going to leave you behind, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to leave you with a helper, a comforter, an advocate. See, Jesus is going back to His Father's side, but it's going to be proof that he really is who He said he, he was all along. See, when Jesus ascends back up into heaven, it will clearly state to these men that Jesus truly was not only sent from God, but He was the Son of God and was returning to His rightful place at His Father's side. His departure had a purpose. And, and the men needed to hear that, but they're hearing it again through this prayer. Prayer a prayer that follow, follows the pep talk. So Jesus goes on and says, in verse 12, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. See back during that washing of the disciples' feet, he says, you're all clean. Eleven of you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said not all of you are clean. Speaking specifically of Judas. He went on and said in verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. See, once again, he's reminding these men that Judas's betrayal of him was part of God's will. It's all in fulfillment of scripture. It had to happen. And Jesus is okay with that. He's not... Uh, He's saddened by it as we saw, but He's not surprised by it because it's all part of the divine plan of redemption. And so the Father has given Jesus responsibility for these disciples. And and they needed to understand that. And and Jesus had completely fulfilled the job that He had been given to do. He had taught these men. He He had rounded them up and He had poured into them. And only one was lost, and it's in order to fulfill the will of his father, to fulfill scripture, and it was Judas. But the rest are still there. They're still in that upper room, and he wanted these men to know that my heavenly Father, who gave you to me, is going to protect you. You're safe and secure. Your future is in the hands of God, and you can rest assured. Verse 13, he says, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy Fulfilled in themselves. Again, they're listening to this prayer and they're thinking, Where's my joy? I don't understand. But he's talking to his heavenly father and he's he's letting them know that guys, there is joy coming, and it's going to come because of God. It's going to come because God's will is going to be fulfilled. All the way back in chapter 14, verse 28, he said, You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. It's not that God is more powerful, but he plays a significant role in the Godhead. There is, there is an order to the Godhead. Jesus submits to the will of his Father. And so these men were going to need to submit to the will of the Father as well. And let him finish what he planned from the, before the foundation of the world. Verse 20 of chapter 16, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn over what's going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. They're going to think they won. They're going to rejoice over the death of this so-called Messiah. You're going to grieve, guys. You're going to cry. You're going to mourn. You're going to have severe loss, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. Why? Because they're going to see the resurrected Lord. They're going to understand that what God planned is all working out. See, Jesus has spoken all these things that He's told them so that they can hear them, but now He wants them to believe them. And He wants them to understand that the Father is the one who should be encouraging them because He's the one who will make sure that all of this happens according to plan. They could trust Him. They could rest in Him. Verse 14, he says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. What did he say back in chapter 15? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, guess what? The world hates you. It's one thing to say it to their faces. It's another thing for them to hear it as he talks to his heavenly father. He, he's letting them know once again that this is okay. This is God's will. You are going to be strangers and aliens and literally wanted men because of your relationship with me. But really, the point is, you don't belong here anymore. You're no longer citizens of this kingdom, you're citizens of another kingdom. And they're going to get their passport when the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost. As, as He becomes the symbol of, the representation of everything that is now different about them. That they do not belong here. They're no longer natural, they're spiritual beings. What an what a, what a interesting way for Jesus to, once again, to reconfirm everything that He said. But notice what He's doing. His prayer is directed as God, at God, and he's directing their attention to God. Don't lose sight of him. Verses 18 and 19, he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Back in chapter 16, verse 13, he said, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. See, the truth is essential. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth, and that truth will now show up in the form of the Holy Spirit, guiding these men into further truth that this is all part of God's divine plan. And He wants them to understand the role of the Helper. They will know more truth than they've ever known before. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. He will reveal new things about me. Things that you never knew during the three and a half years I was with you. He will clarify statements that I have made over the years. See, these men were going to be transformed. And he says, I consecrate myself. I offer up myself as the sacrifice so that they may be sanctified, made holy, set apart in the truth. They were going to be transformed by knowledge, once again, that they didn't currently have. So he's going to set himself apart so that they may be set apart. Him as the sin substitute, but them so that they might fulfill their calling. Teaching the truth of God to a lost and dying world. Well, as he begins to wrap up his prayer, he says, "...the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one." This is not the first time he's communicated this information. All the way back in chapter 14, he said, In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. What day? When the Holy Spirit comes. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He said in chapter 14, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Once again, this unity that they're going to enjoy with the Father and they're going to receive the glory of God, the glory of the manifestation of God in the form of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. They're going to be radically transformed and that's what's going to let them and allow them and empower them to love one another and to love a world that's going to persecute them and take advantage of them. See, back in chapter 13, we, we saw this. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. They're going to love in new ways, in, in extraordinary supernatural ways. He says in 1 John, the first letter John wrote, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. In other words, you have not been transformed. You've not yet been born from above but they will be. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Again, all the way back in chapter 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. And guess what? I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place, that means I'm coming back for you. That they may be with Him. He's telling them once again, reaffirming for them, I am going to come back for you someday so that you may be with me. See, the greatest gift we have is the gift of salvation. But it's ultimately sanctification, our growth in Christ's likeness. And then ultimately, it's our glorification. You've got to keep all of those in in balance because to be saved but to never be sanctified is nothing. Nothing. To be saved, but to never be glorified is nothing. it's, It's all part of the full package that we get as His children. That's why in 1 John, he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, it's not yet happened. But we do know this, that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Paul writes to the Colossians, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. See, our glorification is the end result. That's why He ends this whole prayer with these words, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. See, love is the key. It's what we talked about last week. See, the greatest greatest of all the gifts is love. That's why he ends his prayer talking about the love of God. Their love for one another and the love that's going to transform the world as they go out in the power of the Holy Spirit. His entire ministry had been based on love. And the divine love that they're going to receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon them is going to be both power and proof of who they are. I close with this. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes... Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive His new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. See, that's what it's all about. It's the transforming power that we will receive because Christ loved us enough to die for us and His Father loved us enough to send His Son to die for us. So as Jesus prays this prayer, following up His pep talk, I want you to wrestle with, what does it mean for you? As you talk with others about this and as you meditate on these questions, I want you to wrestle with them and think about the implication of everything He's just said in this prayer because it all applies to you and I. Do you think our love has convinced the world that we are Jesus' disciples? If not, why? See, we've been told that That's the proof. That's the proof that we are as disciples. But do we love in such a way that the world truly believes that we're sons of God? How about this? In what areas of your Christian life could you use a spiritual pep talk or or maybe a prayer? Where do you need to have your seat kicked? Where do you need to have somebody come alongside you and give you a spiritual pep talk? Well, Jesus Christ just gave you one. And he's offered you a prayer because this prayer applies to you and I as much as it does to the disciples. Jesus' prayer was meant as a reminder of God's role in our entire salvation story from salvation to glorification. Why is that important? I love it if you're saved, if you made a a decision for Christ at some point in your life, guess what? Wonderful. But have you grown in Christ? And are you counting on the fact that one day you'll be glorified and you'll spend eternity with Christ? See, it's all one package and you can't have two out of the three. It's all three. And all three are what make the gift of salvation through Christ, so magnificent. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for the time that you've given us in your word. And I pray that all of these passages would begin to make sense and resonate with every one of us, that they are meant to encourage us. That even now, as we sit on this side of the cross, Father, would you remind us that you are still in control, that your plan is still perfect, that you've not vacated the premises, you've not turned your back on us, that you're Sovereign will is being done to perfection. May we learn to trust you in that and move forward in faith. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You guys have a great week and stay warm.